everybody. Welcome back. We have Benjamin Studebecker again on the podcast. Fantastic. Really excited about this conversation. We were emailing back and forth a little bit about, obviously, lots has been going on, you know, and maybe certain uh, instincts that we might have shared about certain things. Um, Benjamin recommended that we talk about Trumbo. What was it about Trumbo in particular that um, made you interested? Well, Dalton Trumbo, uh, the subject of that film, is a filmmaker who gets put on the Hollywood blacklist because of his ties to uh, communist organizations during the Red Scare. And of course, there's, there's that. There's this kind of closing up of what's possible in terms of speech through informal mechanisms. It's not as if communist organizations became illegal in the post-war era, but you received deep and serious social penalties for being part of them. And that created a powerful disincentive to, to being part of them. But on top of that, in the movie, as he's trying to get his career back, he's kind of leading this group of blacklisted people who are trying to get their careers back. And they initially try to get it back through lawsuits and they're unsuccessful doing that. And they start writing movies under pen names in secret. And as they're doing this, some of the people in the group start to wonder, you know, are you are you really trying to get us our, our speech rights back because you are standing up for communists and for people who have been put on the blacklist? Or are you just trying to make a ton of money and be recognized as a famous filmmaker again? And there's some confusion about what his motivations are. And the movie plays with it a little bit. They could just make him a straight hero. That, mm -hmm but they play with it a little bit. And it's facilitated by Trumbo being played by Brian Cranston, who is wonderfully, uh, he can be Hal and Malcolm in the middle and he can be the you know, Walter White in Breaking Bad. So he, you could play it a little bit both ways, uh, but his whole family, everybody around him is, is under a lot of pressure from this kind of under the table script writing operation he's cooked up. And he's got this kind of martyr attitude about it that he's, really out there defending this cause. But at the same time, there's this, this creeping feeling that, you know, uh, he just wants to work again and he just wants to be paid again and he just wants to be a famous Hollywood writer again. And, and those things are going on at the same time and it's unclear where one begins and the other ends. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's a really interesting film. Obviously, um, there's the thing first about, first of all about, uh, you know, being a communist and obviously, well, even before there's actually a point that um, cancellation is obviously something that's really, um, you know, to the fore in people's minds in, such, in terms of contemporary culture. And obviously we have like clear examples of this because of things like Twitter and these platforms that we use to communicate with each other that have almost become as prevalent as the air we breathe. And obviously we recently had Trump being cancelled. And then you have sort of... Um, some people on the left saying that cancellation doesn't exist. Um, but the one thing that I would say about this, like maybe uh, more kind of contrarian idea about cancellation that maybe we can say is maybe there's something that's being gotten at by the critique of the existence of uh, cancellation is that it potentially is like nothing new to a certain extent in that yes, cancellation is as old as, um, the free market, you know, because we, we, you know, 
in, in all, and I you know your work touches on this a lot, and in all sort of like um, uh, social arrangement, economic arrangements, there's something that won't be won't fit, and we have to have you know certain ideological justification mechanisms to pretend that it's all rational. And under our system, you know, the free market as a free market, well, it becomes very complicated to um, to justify the bits that don't fit because, of course, it's all the free market. So when we then have this idea that like somebody is taken out of the free market because of their ideas, well, it really jars because oh, I thought this was supposed to be capitalism was supposed to be a free market. So there's that. But that, um, yeah, so as long as there has been any social organization, there's always been certain people that cannot, that whose ideas cannot be born because they're too, they bring up the contradictions too much. So obviously to a certain extent, yes, this, this film depicts a, a cancel issue in the McCarthy era, but at the same time, it's, it's a bringing back. Um, so I guess the point that I'm making there is just that, yeah, that on the, on the uh, media, I don't know, maybe we need to invent term, new terminology, but I think you know what I mean, <laughs> this idea that cancellation doesn't exist. Well, maybe they're saying that it, this is nothing new. What are you getting your knickers in a twist about? Obviously, with tech, it's more, it's more, um, and the, the private companies owning um, areas of something that we would have experienced in any other social organization's public space. It becomes really obvious that, like, you know, private individuals are making these decisions. But the point being, yes, it, it has existed in other forms, and the communist Trumbo is an example of somebody who was cancelled. I mean, he went to prison or whatever. But at the same time, the fact that Hollywood is making a movie about uh, a communist figure now goes to show that that critique, um, that communist critique, or that particular critique of Trumbo's, um, is not in any way threatening anymore. And also the reintegration of Trumbo towards the end of his life, um, not only is it not threatening, but also there is something very compelling about that figure. And we were having a little discussion a while ago about the um, latest Terrence Malick film. I have to say, I am. Um, I used to hate Terrence Malick, but I like now in my older years, and I, I really, really love it. Um, and I think this film's really interesting. And I guess this is, this touches on this kind of notion of like the the what the the how of the things rather than the what like the dynamics behind the ideas rather than the ideas themselves. Um, but this idea of a figure standing up for what they believe in is something that we always within capitalism maybe think is a really um uh powerful antagonistic position but that's not always the case because as we've seen with certain figures who are coming to prominence now and you know the the prevalence of the professional activist we can maybe see that this is not really um just by dint of having wearing the coat or the badge of an activist with certain values and a, a quote unquote political stance, that that's necessarily antagonistic to anything. Yeah, yeah, and I think if we if we look at the history of this thing, uh, liberalism always needs to have a civil society space where there's a kind of a, at least what appears to be a pluralistic discourse, right? The narrative of liberalism is that you're free. And part of the way in which you're free is that you get to choose you know, your values, what you believe in, et cetera, et cetera. So there's gotta be this plural space, right? And liberals also don't like the idea of the government telling everybody what to believe, that feels totalitarian. So the plural space has got to be privatized, right? And in old, old fashioned liberal arguments, that's civil society, this privatized, plural space where people can acquire values, beliefs, educate themselves, 
develop virtues and morality, right? All of that's supposed to occur in this private civil society space. But as soon as liberalism formulated that space, it formulated the potential problems with that space, which is that what happens if some of these private organizations try to spread ideas which are anti-statist, anti-liberal, anti-market, anything that's anti-system, right? And Max Weber, long, long ago, called these people immature, immature because they don't realize that their freedom to choose their values comes from the system that they're criticizing. And therefore, those immature people, or what John Rawls calls unreasonable people, uh, have to be rooted out and kicked out of these civil society spaces. But if the state is doing it through direct censorship, that again looks heavy handed and totalitarian. So somehow the state has got to get the private organizations in civil society to self-regulate. And the tricky thing is, well, how do you do that? And in the case of the Red Scare, it was make it so that if you, you can be in a communist organization, but if you're in a communist organization, you can't progress in any other kind of organization any other kind of organization, whether it's the Democratic Party, whether it's trade unions, whether it's uh, the arts. If you're in a communist organization, you will not be able to move in any other organization. And so you'll be in a silo separated from the rest of society. Or uh, consider the unions, another kind of civil society organization, which did a lot of educating and socializing. In the 70s, the right starts to take the unions to be a kind of radical thing that is a undermining the basis for capitalism. And so through right to work laws, right? Right to work laws ostensibly increase your rights as a worker. You don't have to join the union. You don't have to pay union dues. You have the right to work. Of course, the function of that is to make it so that unions can't raise enough money to stay alive or stay relevant. Uh, and if they aren't able to be as to demonstrate their utility and their ability to help you, then you'll have even less reason to join them. So it kicks off a cycle of weakening the unions. And then that leaves you with fewer civil society organizations that you can join in a more circumscribed civil society space. So I'm looking at what's going on in tech and I'm mm. going, okay, over the last few years, these tech companies, you know, they initially come into this whole argument going, we're utilities and this is you know, public space and we don't regulate it, right? Mm -hmm. So they set up this narrative that actually they're like the phone company. And that is very useful for them early on when they're trying to get established. Now, of course, once they get established, then they want a bunch of money from advertisers and media companies. And the way to get that money is to have these people pay them to move their stuff up the feeds, right? Mm -hmm. So they're getting bribed effectively by, by companies to move their content up the Twitter feed, up the Facebook feed, right? And you go, hey, wait a minute, you're a utility. How can you be accepting money to move stuff up the feed? You know, that's like being bribed by spammers to uh, mm -hmm. let them call my house uh, incessantly. Mm -hmm. You know, why mm -hmm. are you, you know, if you're a utility, why are you acting like this? And they go, oh no, we're not utilities, we're media companies, right? We're a media company and we own the, the media platform and we decide mm -hmm. what goes on and what goes off. And like any media company we run it, we have advertisers mm -hmm. and that's our business model. We're a media company. Well, then people go, okay, you're a media company. So why is it that you have all of this speech from all of these different groups of people that we don't like? Why should we be using you? And why should we you know, uh, advertise on your website? if uh, you're sponsoring all of this other speech, right? Uh, and allowing people to say things which have effects on politics. And so now the media companies go, well, okay, uh, 
I'm a utility. Well, that doesn't work because it's obvious that you're not just a utility. Mm -hmm. You go, I'm a media company. Now you have to regulate what goes on and what goes off. Now you have to be a gatekeeper. Now you're like NBC or Fox or CNN or anything else, really. Mm -hmm. And th this gradual transformation of the, the these public sphere utilities into civil society, private media organizations mm -hmm. that are uh, much more heavily uh, circumscribing the discourse over mm -hmm. the Trump administration. I think that's the lasting technological legacy of the Trump administration is that it has been the catalyst for yeah. turning these uh, tech companies firmly into private civil society organizations that exist not just to create the discourse, but to police it and guide it in the way that traditional media giants police and guide discourse. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because like I, I like that point, you know, about like the, the Trump administration kind of um, uh, like the hand it has in all of this, because I think there's like a dialectics of all of it. And it's obviously very easy to be like, well, you know, on the side of Trump or like Trump's a vi victim, you know, whatever. But obviously, like, you know, his own administration has has effects and, you know, vice, you know, vice versa to, to those that they affect. It's interesting. I watched back um, recently. Um, I don't know if you remember uh Jack Dorsey and like his senior executive in like deciding who you know what's acceptable to be put on Twitter went on to the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of years ago and they had um they were there to talk with Joe and also with Tim Paul who's like a kind of um independent journalist you know sort of like I guess like a more libertarian perspective and it was interesting hearing like the, the debate between the two um groups in terms of uh, Tim's point was basically like you know, okay, it's all very well. You you make these decisions. You make these decisions to to um, protect people. Their point is the the Twitter executive's point was like, so any people can say whatever they want, but if there is um, a uh, phrase that's posted that um, incites is going to actually create direct violence on a person, then. Um, they will they will cancel it. So obviously, you know, as you say, that there are several kind of like it's it's not just a simple given to say that because obviously, as you say, these these companies are are you know, well essentially utility like you know the 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 effectively the privatized commons in a certain way, and then um, also it's like so whose whose um, ideological position are you taking as the uh, as the sort of like lens through which you make the decision of who is being harmed and not. And this was Tim Paul's, and he's obviously, you know, more, more on the right. Um, but I would think, you know, if that somebody of his, well, I mean, I don't know if writes the word, but you know, he's more libertarian. And if um, a libertarian was in charge, I'm sure they'd have slightly different, you know, uh, choices being made. And we all know that, you know, the ideological bent of so, so Valley, I think it's pretty fucking obvious. <laughs> the point being, it's well, yeah, like, they're taking money from advertisers, right? Yeah, so the more money yeah, exactly. you take from advertisers, then yeah. the more leverage advertisers have over yeah. how you regulate the content. And yeah. the same yeah. is true for, say, Fox or CNN. The more money they yeah. take from companies for TV ads, the yeah. more dependent they are on those companies to prove the content that is on mm -hmm. television. And the same mm -hmm. is true for social media. They're just like yeah. television companies. Yeah. And the thing is, it's like, so, so I think the point being that they, you know, they were saying, you know, the latest research says that this group is, you know, commits suicide at a higher rate, or this group is particularly offended. So we, you know, the, anything that's directed towards this group, which, of course, is, you know, true, but you know, it's, it's not, it's not a sort of, um, 
whatever lens, obviously one has a, has a uh, position and the, the capitalist position, the liberal, neoliberal capitalist position, you know, the justification mechanism is this form of like um, morality. There's a, there's a big morality um, sort of weaponization to prevent critique um, of egregious accumulation that has you know, basically taken place because of, uh, you know, um, clever marketing and destroying rules that used to be, be in place to prevent this from happening. But that, you know, it's it's never neutral. It is never neutral and it never can be neutral, basically. And I think, you know, um, interesting, you know, like going back to the idea of like citizenship and the state, what is your opinion on um, the neutrality of the state versus the neutrality of the private company? Well, when, when it comes to the state, I, I think it's kind of a liberal versus small R Republican debate mm -hmm. that we're, we're kind of having. And yeah. I think both the right and the left, Anton Yeager uh, made a, a tweet recently that I liked on this, that kind of one of the things that unites both the left and the right critiques of capitalism is that there's some small R Republicanism flowing mm -hmm. through both of these. Yeah. And with small R Republicanism, the public space belongs to everybody. And uh, you know, in republics, historically, sometimes people would be kicked out, you know, ostracized mm -hmm. or removed. But if that happened, it would have to be done through the state, through some kind of public process mm -hmm. that theoretically everybody would be part of, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the way that it's being done now is, is getting private companies to do it and using the fact that they're private to say, well, the state doesn't have any say in it and therefore uh, it's, it's just private business. So it, all of this kind of depends on there being a liberal view of this sphere that says that it's civil society and therefore it's private companies and private companies are free to self-regulate and that's part of what freedom means in the society. But the left and the right are viewing social media not as a private civil society, but as a public realm in a republic, mm -hmm. something that ought to belong to everybody. It happens to be under private companies, but really those private companies should act as if they were the state and respect, mm -hmm. say, First Amendment free speech rights, mm -hmm. right? So, of course, even if you're under First Amendment free speech rights, there are certain things which the state implements, which potentially circumscribes that, especially in states which don't have things like the American First Amendment. There are going to be some level of speech restraints in public spheres. Mm -hmm. But those speech restraints, if they come out through a democratic process, there's mm -hmm. at least some sense in which that process is answerable to the public, yeah. mm -hmm. right? Of course, you know, elections can be messed with by outside money and there's all sorts yeah. of things which, which damage uh, electoral democracy, but there's at least some mechanism for the yeah. public to have some kind of say over how speech gets regulated and what kind of speech regulations are acceptable. Yeah. When they put it in the hands of the private company, then mm -hmm. the private company can do anything really, mm -hmm. all under the uh, uh, aegis of it being private. And of course, yeah. what Twitter will tell you, and Dorsey has said this in the past, is that, well, if you don't like the way that Twitter regulates speech, you're free to start your own social media company or to go on another social media company. But what happens is any social media company that gets large enough mm -hmm. uh, becomes dependent on, uh, say, Amazon to, you know, yeah. as we're hearing with Parler, right? Parler was yeah. dependent yeah. on Amazon to host it in the cloud, yeah. right? Yeah. So these people who have been kicked off Twitter, they go to Parler and then yeah. Amazon decides we're not gonna let Parler uh, on our cloud because mm -hmm. that goes against, Parler goes against our values because they don't regulate their content, right? Mm -hmm. So Parler kicked off of uh, Amazon 
has a hard time finding enough server space to run a large scale uh, social media company. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it wasn't that large to begin with. It had yeah. you know, just maybe 10 million people on it. It wasn't very yeah. big. So it's not very realistic to say, just go to another social media company. And realistically, the only kinds of social media companies that will exist are the social media companies that are compatible with the people who advertise and with the people mm -hmm. who sell cloud space online. Mm -hmm. So the, the effect of that is that you can't really go anywhere else. And this is the thing about a mature liberal civil society. You have pluralism, but it's a circumscribed pluralism where everything is, is kind of limited. Mm -hmm. uh, and you get different aesthetics. You go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, you go on Instagram. It's a different interface. Yeah. And it's aesthetically a little bit of a different feel. The posts have a little bit of a different feel. But in terms of substantive content, the regulations eventually on, on what you can say eventually become kind of the same everywhere. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing about liberal civil society spaces that great after a while, they yeah. all start to feel like different flavors of the same thing, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, different flavors of ice cream, but it's all the same ice cream, right? Yeah. And it's soft serve too, it's not, yeah. uh, yeah, it's not, it's not heavy, meaty. Yeah. yeah, it's not meaty. And and the thing about it is is yeah. compatibility with liberalism means uh, a willingness to accept that you'll never win, right? Yeah, it means yeah. that you'll you'll yeah. never win, and therefore yeah. you'll always be talking alongside lots of other people talking. Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. you're never going to win, then you're not going to be able to achieve major changes. Yeah. And the thing that attracts a lot of people to political organizing or to religion or to mm -hmm. civil society organizations is the mm -hmm. possibility of actually going and doing something. Yeah, absolutely. And, and absolutely. doing political action. And mm -hmm. civil society gradually, gradually locks that mm -hmm. up to the point where everything is just a place to make friends. Yeah. And and everything is just a place to hang out and and have yeah. your aesthetic uh, projected in some way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And none of the organizations actually do anything. And yeah. one of the things that I think people like about public spheres, especially when they've been in civil society for a while and in the 90s, you know, we've really been in civil society for a mm -hmm. while. Is that in a public sphere, because everyone is thrown together in mm -hmm. one big space, you know, mm -hmm. and the Internet was was like that, especially in the beginning, one big space. Uh, th there can just be a fight over that space, and there's actually mm -hmm. some possibility of fighting a little bit and, mm -hmm. and arguing. And initially, that's that's very exciting because all of these people who sit in their different civil society clubs talking and not doing very much, now they're thrown together and they actually have to interact and, and compete for space in the public realm. Mm -hmm. But of course, when you're all in one big space, the conflict gets hotter and it gets sharper and these antagonisms get more developed and it starts to pull, right? And gradually, as the internet has gotten bigger, th those conflicts started to spill into regular politics and started mm -hmm. to have a political impact. And for a long time, and you could, you know, if you think back, for a long time, that the way that the internet was, was dealt with, it was just assumed that only weirdos and freaks were on the internet mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that it had no impact on regular politics, right? Rand Paul you know, and Ron Paul were big on the internet, but they never did mm -hmm. anything in, in real politics. So you don't have to worry about the internet. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, Bernie Sanders, big on the internet, but he didn't win. So it's, mm -hmm. it's okay. It's because Donald Trump was big on the internet and then won that the mm -hmm. attitude to the internet changed, mm -hmm. where all of the traditional media had kind of decided they didn't like him. And yeah. then because of the internet, and, and especially in people's minds because of Twitter, he was mm -hmm. able to break through. Although a lot of social media networks had something to do with that. Yeah. 
And once that happens, now the attitude is, wait a minute, now our politics is actually being shaped by a public realm that isn't regulated by these trustworthy, mature private organizations. And so now the internet has to be partitioned mm-hmm. and regulated by these private orgs. And what will gradually happen is that the internet will close up and become really boring and really bland. And there will be an effort to get rid of all of that conflict. And it'll have to be done gradually. So the people who are really at the edge of this are the people who want to repeal, I think it's section 2030, or or I, I can't quite remember the number, but there's a section currently in US law, which protects the social media companies for being sued for things people say online, right? So if you libel yeah. someone uh, yeah. on social media, currently the social media company can't be sued. There's some people who want to repeal that section. And if you repeal that section, then the social media companies will have to get rid of any controversial speech, really, because mm-hmm. of the level of liability risk. Now, that mm-hmm. isn't going to happen because that would be too sharp a change all at once. Mm-hmm. But the people pushing for that change are implicitly saying to the tech companies, you have to self-regulate mm-hmm. or maybe we'll do something horrible like this mm-hmm. that will ruin your business model and destroy you. Right. Mm-hmm. And the tech companies respond to that by self-regulating and regulating themselves as if they were the state doing the regulation. Yeah. So as to avoid the possibility of the state destroying their business model to protect itself from the discourse which comes out of the internet. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I do like I do like this uh, this like close circle of the whole thing, and I also like this idea of you know this small R Republican, you know how it kind of all gets blown by down, and you know those that um, basically on all sides, you know, are looking at this from from that kind of lens. Um, also, you know, interestingly in the film, you know, Trumbo does go through a like a a public court, you know, essentially. So, you know, it's, at least obviously we know that that's um, not not just or anything, but it might have the illusion. I don't know if it's like a tribunal or what kind of um, court case it was, but yeah, it had, it had the illusion. Obviously now it's just a click of a button. But as we we know, you know, there's a, a lady, Amy, who, um, you know, she's quite intense online or whatever, and she has been <laughs> deleted, I don't know how many times, to just keep post, you know, Keep, you know, you can't. If you if you break a law within the kind of state, you might eventually end up getting executed or something. You know, if it goes as far as off, you know, she just keeps like keeps being deleted. She just invents another name. It's quite an interesting spectacle in and of itself. And um, you touched on, you know, Donald Donald Trump then, and I think that um, it's interesting the sort of hysteria that happened around the internet and around Donald Trump being elected, and then also around the internet and uh, what happened at the Capitol the other day. Um, just in a private conversation with a friend who is of a, of a different kind of political perspective than I would be. Um, there was sort of this, um, uh, you know, like a, a feeling that maybe hadn't been rationalized, that it was somehow wrong and that like the, the, um, the fact that people had politicized themselves online was the problem and that Trump had been um, elected in the first place was the problem. So, you know, rather than seeing, you know, Trump being... Um, Deplatformed by, uh, obviously, you know, you, there's loads of different insights about this, but one one insight might be that this company is so big that even the president is, you know, deleted from the platform. But it was almost the fact that, um, you know, one could say that that's quote unquote undemocratic, you know, from a certain perspective. But this person's perspective was it was undemocratic that um, certain people had uh, exchanged ideas on Facebook and then got the idea to go to the capital. Whereas, um, let's say, 
you know, uh, North Africa in 2011, you know, the, the Arab Spring, you know, that was all um, communication on Facebook about political ideas that we might, you know, in the West say that's a democratic move. So, you know, it all depends on you know, who your, who your, um, you know, choose your character or whatever they do at the beginning of a video game. But the point being is it definitely just does, it raises something within us that this new sphere of the internet is a sphere in which, you know, up to uh, Trump saying nasty things online or up to the exchange of the ideas that um, doesn't necessarily bring about the, this uh, event at the Capitol, but, you know, contributes towards it. I do. You know, I thought it was just really interesting that it is sort of people are kind of feeling some having feelings. Let's just say about about all of this stuff. Of course, people love the unregulated internet if they think they're winning on it. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> as soon as they think they're maybe not going to win on it, then they want it tightened up like everything else has been tightened up. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And and the the hypocrisy there is a bit galling, but also kind of predictable. Uh, you know, yeah. liberalism loves the free open space until it seems to threaten liberalism, and a lot of the more intelligent liberal theorists have been quite uh, acknowledging of that tension mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. explicit about the fact that that tension exists. In the contemporary literature, it's a debate about perfectionism and anti-perfectionism in mm -hmm. liberal theory. That's mm -hmm. often how it's put. And usually this debate is framed in a tame kind of way, like should the state finance the opera or is that yeah. the state taking a comprehensive view uh, on what's good in life? Right. So yeah. it gets framed as should the state sponsor things. But of course, mm -hmm. there's a converse version of it is should the state discourage certain kinds of speech? And of yeah, course, absolutely. openly legislating against it is something yeah. that everybody everybody says, no, 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 don't do that. But yeah. subtly pushing the tech companies to do it by threatening them with the repeal of laws that protect them from lawsuits. Uh, you know, that's something that is more within what the state can get away with. Yeah. And so to some degree, you know, people go, well, is it Twitter stomping on the state? Well, first, the state intimidated Twitter. And mm -hmm. Facebook by dragging these people in before Congress and threatening them with all kinds of spooky regulation, right? Mm -hmm. And then they responded by going after Trump. In this, they're not necessarily going after the state per se, because it's mm -hmm. the, it's parts of the state which have put Twitter up to going after other parts of the state. And one of the yeah. things that's <laughs> curious about where we're at is that democracy yeah. has so much legitimacy overwhelmingly. You know, people yeah. talk about the Capitol right like it was a threat to democracy. It's not. Democracy has overwhelming mm -hmm. legitimacy, so much legitimacy yeah. that everyone on every side of the issue paints themselves as pro-democracy and is defending yeah. democracy from some kind of threat. And they call mm -hmm. the threat, depending on whether they're left-wing or right-wing communism or fascism or whatever, yeah. Uh, yeah. but everyone says, you know, or technocracy, they're defending mm -hmm democracy from some kind of external boogeyman that wants to get rid of it, right? Even the Trump people who are going to the Capitol thing are going there mm -hmm. because they think the election was was taken, was stolen yeah, from them, taken. and they're mm -hmm. there to defend an electoral process in their minds. That's yeah. what they think they're doing, right? So <laughs> yeah. everybody, everybody's for democracy here. And so what you mm -hmm. get is different parts of the state that have found that the, the most effective way to really, really make your supporters come out for you is to say that somebody else in the state, some other part of the state is hostile to democracy and a threat to democracy and an insidious communist or fascist yeah. agitator because everyone mm -hmm. hates communism and fascism still. Mm -hmm. Everybody hates yeah. these things. Even the people on the left and the right, what they want is some kind of you know, democratic socialism or some kind of you know, electoral right-wing populism. They don't want uh, authoritarianism, at least not in the United States, the UK, 
uh, France, Germany, maybe in other parts of the world where democracy is newer and there are more people who grew up under previous kinds of regimes and are nostalgic for their youths. Uh, that's, that's a different story. That is a different context. But in places where everybody has grown up in democracy, gone to school, being told democracy is great and authoritarianism is bad, uh, and that's the difference. You don't get that. What you get is different kinds of views about what it would mean to defend democracy and different kinds of views about what democracy ought, ought to look like. And so we're, we're having this clash between this Republican view that says that we ought to have a kind of public sphere that everybody can participate in that isn't heavily gatekept or regulated by oligarchs, right? And that television and the newspapers, all of this has become too tight and too liberal centrist mm -hmm. and too hegemonic. And it isn't open to enough different ideas. And there, there's too much going wrong in the world because of this lack of competition among ideas yeah. that liberal centrism has kind of failed to uh, provide for us and that we have to be able to challenge this consensus and come up with new ways of doing democratic politics, right? They're both left-wing and right-wing versions of that, but all of them kind of predicated around this idea that we need a new public sphere where we can all come together and hash it all out, right? Mm -hmm. And people who are defending the liberal consensus who are going, no, that public sphere is the problem. That's the threat to democracy. And if we could just get back in control of the discourse again, then the consensus would come back. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's mm -hmm. predicated on why is the consensus gone? So the smaller yeah. Republicans say the consensus is gone because we have a society that's being run for a corrupt elite. Right now, the left will say it's being run for capitalism and the right will say it's being run by you know, usually cabals of secret societies or other kinds yeah. of strange, weird nonsense. Right. But in yeah. both cases, it's there's some kind of elite that is uh, not. Do, handling things in a responsible way, not servicing the public good or the public interest. And that that elite has become the problem and that gradually societies become more unfair and more rigged in different kinds of ways. And that this is this is the fundamental thing we have to deal with. We have to figure out how the society has been rigged and we have to unrig it. Right? Mm -hmm. And on the other side, you got people who are going, no, there's no there's nothing fundamentally wrong. All that's wrong is that there are people who think these radical things who are spreading their radicalism through the Internet. And if mm -hmm. we stop these people from spreading their radicalism through the internet, then everything will be fine. It's all a discourse illusion and everything is actually fine and liberalism is fine and the 90s are still yeah. good. And, yeah, you know, yeah. You know, like Steven Pinker who goes, actually things are better than they ever were before. Everything is yeah. constantly better. And it's all just a, a mirage problem that the mm -hmm. left-wingers and right-wingers have made up on the internet and are using the internet to, to uh, brainwash people into believing. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's two fundamentally different views, the kind of liberal yeah. civil society view uh, that says that public realms are the threat and the smaller Republican view that says that we, we need more in actual diversity, substantive intellectual diversity in discourse, mm -hmm. a substantive value diversity, uh, because too many values and too many ideas have been excluded from public discourse for too long. Uh, that directly conflicts with the argument in you know, people like Rawls who say that these more substantive worldviews that say, you know, actually exploitation of people is a problem uh, and a fundamental problem and not just something that we can have arguments about and then have an election every few years and tinker with at the margins, but something that we have to fundamentally deal with. Yeah. Uh, you know, those views are for liberals unreasonable views that can't really be part of public discourse. And if they're tolerated as part of public discourse, it's only because they are perceived to pose no imminent threat to the system, right? Mm -hmm. And it's telling that when did Trumbo come out? It came out in 2015, it came yep. out before Donald Trump. Yes. Before. Yes. 
right? And it came out before people you know, started taking Bernie Sanders a little bit more seriously too. Yeah. Uh, and you know, all of this stuff about uh, you know, speech, it is easy to defend it retrospectively after the movement that the person was uh, championing has either decisively succeeded or failed. But yeah. it's difficult MLK, to champion everybody. it. Yeah, very difficult to champion it in the moment. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's just it's interesting as well, like the, 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 the other film, Terence Marriott film, which depicts a, um, uh, you know, a farmer in, in Austria who is a conscientious objector. And obviously, um, it's interesting, it has to, you know, this, this, this objection has to be painted as anti-fascist, you know, and against this you know, Nazism or whatever, you know, rather than, so, so the taking the stand is sort of, um, mollified, you know, nullified, well, sort of blandified and digestible, and you know, isn't that such a great thing? But I mean, I think that the film is doing like various things at the same time. But um, there was so much in what you said that is just really interesting, like the fact that, as you said, I hadn't really thought about it before, but the idea of diversity, you know, is such is the buzzword on both the the right and the liberal left. You know, diversity of, of identity and diversity of ideas. You know, I think that really speaks to this idea of the uh, yeah the, the the this liberal landscape. Um, and the other thing, you know, this this uh, this ideas question, though, you know, it's um, it's interesting. Though, just just this idea of um, identity of, of of a person. Obviously, people have ideas, but you know, the, the liberal left might um, be uh, well. I guess you know, not to single out the liberal left on this front, but just as you know, a clear example is this idea of the people storming the capital and this idea of just eradicating these ideas and these people. Um, it's it's not about the person; it's about the ideas, or it's about this sort of these people carry this virus of the wrong idea, and if you can just get rid of this virus of the wrong idea, um, really not having any idea about why the let's it, call it a virus, if you know from that perspective, um, has come about. You know the material conditions that have led to to the adoption of such ideas. But it's it's interesting that you know that as you you point out, the right is just so you know vocally about ideas. And um, the diversity of identities is such a thing on the liberal left, but really it does come down to ideas, essentially. And often, you know, if you have the wrong kind of person or the right kind of person with the wrong kind of ideas, then it can, you know, there's all sorts of like um, twister type uh, contortions you can get into as to justify why that person suddenly doesn't fit into the par paradigm of categories, you know? So it is, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask you about was this idea of like the critique of something called radical centrism. I think it's just an interesting um, that it's it's come to the surface as like a, as another one of these um, sort of cliched ideas, and the fact that it's such a disdain for said centrism, but that <laughs> what is there other than that essentially? Um, yeah, and we were talking a little bit in advance about you know, like the squad and all this kind of stuff. Um, and maybe the distance between uh, an aesthetic of radicality and an actual yeah. And this gets back to how liberal civil society reinvents itself, right? Yeah. Because liberal civil society needs to have a lot of aesthetic conflict. There have to be aesthetic yeah. differences so yes. that the pluralism feels real and you feel like you actually have a real choice and that you're free. Right. There has to be aesthetic variation, but that variation can't become too substantive, too much values and ideas, because if that happens, then there will be real conflict and liberalism mm -hmm. doesn't want real conflict. So what has to happen is to prevent this lethargia from setting in. 
they have to find a way to, to find people who seem to be for substantively different values, but are actually okay with the continuation of the liberal status quo. These people, their aesthetic can then be appropriated and incorporated into liberal pluralism. And that can renew the civil society space and make people once again feel as if it includes mm -hmm. genuine diversity of ideas and values, right? So yeah. what I think has been happening with the left critique is that you know people like Bernie come in and try to challenge this thing. And then you've got group, people who come up through this movement who are, you know, to some degree they're they're interested in it, but I think in general, most people are just much less ideological than everybody yeah. recognizes. Most people mm -hmm. are just kind of going along to get along and they're hopping on stuff where they can make friends and they can be appreciated and valued. And they're motivated by uh, by that and not by you know principled ideological stance, right? One of the mm -hmm. weird things about Bernie Sanders is that he said the same thing since the eighties. Politicians don't generally sound the same for 40 or 50 years, uh, but Bernie Sanders is actually ideological. Uh, he actually has a kind of fixed set of beliefs. A lot of the people in the Bernie movement saw a kind of cool, cool, what's cool with the kids thing. Here's a place to have a career. And I mean, maybe there's you know some kind of sympathy for the values, but it's not comprehensive. It's not you know, a set of beliefs that somebody's worked on from a theoretical standpoint. Mm -hmm. So what we're seeing is that there's this set of figures who I, you know, I think even Bernie Sanders himself likes them. You know, they yeah. are very, very able to work within these circles because they know how to talk the way that people who actually believe the stuff talk, or at least talk mm -hmm. in a way that's similar enough that a lot of people who believe the stuff will go along, right? But their actual function is to be part of liberal civil society and to bring that radical critique and turn it into just another liberal aesthetic. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And in the course of doing that, shepherd all these people back into the liberal consensus. Mm -hmm. And I think AOC is a, a great example of this. And the thing yeah. about AOC is if you really watch what AOC says and does, if you watch it mm -hmm. closely, uh, there are two kinds of people who pay close attention to AOC, people who love AOC and people who really can't stand AOC, mm -hmm. right? And if you're one of the people who really, you know, who really watches AOC closely, what you will see is that there are all kinds of contradictions in what she says and I'm does. Certainly. And mm -hmm. if you were someone who is theoretically, you know, actually ideologically left wing, you would not do the things that AOC says mm -hmm. and does. The things mm -hmm. AOC says and does don't make sense from the point of view of being ideological. And so Absolutely. then you're left to, to conclude that something else is going on. But if you mm -hmm. say this, if you say that something else is going on, Firstly, there are a bunch of people who follow AOC who really, really love her on a personal level. Mm -hmm. They've formed an mm -hmm. attachment and they're projecting themselves onto her. So an attack on her and an attack on them. Those people get very upset. And secondly, yeah. there are a group of people who don't follow AOC personally very closely, but have this kind of vague notion that AOC is left wing. And so yeah. any critique of AOC is a critique of the left, a movement that they identify with, even though they're not following her as a personality, especially closely. And so because of this, even though there are all sorts of contradictions in AOC's behavior, she's been able to gradually shepherd more and more people back toward a liberal consensus. And I think the decisive instance of this is when after the Capitol attack, um, after the Capitol protest, she comes out and says uh, that not only are, is it fine to kick people off of social media, but this is, of course, what we should have been doing, what we should do. And if anybody's losing followers, they must be losing fascists because the only people who are getting banned are fascists, right? So there's this implication in what AOC is saying that uh, 
people who are left wing have nothing to fear from these bans. And of course, I've already heard uh, about, say, the Socialist Worker Party in Britain having a number of their Facebook accounts deleted. If people like Amy Therese, my former co-host, she gets deleted off Twitter all the time. Uh, it is not as if these bans only affect uh, right wingers or only affect the right. They also do affect the left. Uh, but the left is, is given the right as a justification. And in supporting that, the left gets moved back into, into, liberal, into the liberal mainstream. And now we hear all of these people going, yeah, the cops should beat everybody up. The cops should arrest everybody. We should pass new laws that are a Patriot Act for policing out fascism. Uh, and going back into this kind of post 9-11 mindset that there's a kind of enemy that we have to identify and root out. And you're either with us or against us. Either you are with us or you're with the terrorists. You're with the domestic terrorists in this case, which are the far right. And you have to be for all of these security measures. And you know why would you be against them? Are you a fascist? Uh, unless you are one, you know, if you have nothing to hide, uh, you know, why are you why are you upset by all of this? Because this is only about going after very obviously bad people, right? Don't you trust people like AOC who say that? Uh, come on, uh, AOC is left wing, and she says that you have nothing to worry about. So why are you worried? Unless you're not left wing, unless you're someone who's on the far right, and this is this is post 9/11 stuff. And when I got into politics, I was eight during the 2000 election, and so I was this little weird kid who was really into politics right as 9-11 was going on and years immediately after 9-11. I remember on September 11th, I remember I was going to a public elementary school in Indiana and the teachers said to us that we couldn't go out to recess and we couldn't go out to recess because we might get attacked by terrorists if we went out to recess at my little elementary school. And I remember I was a little kid, I remember going, the adults have lost it. They have just mm -hmm. gone crazy. And they stayed crazy from about 2001 to 2005. And then gradually, gradually, they started to climb out of it. But in that period immediately afterwards, there was a, I remember there was a couple weeks after 9-11 where there was a debate about whether our policies in the Middle East had contributed to the attack, whether we had played a role in radicalizing these people. Even though 3,000 people were blown up, we had a debate very briefly about whether we had played a role in all of this. And then it was all shut down. George W. Bush came out and said, you're either with us or you're with the terrorists and we're gonna go after them. And you know, if you're not for this, then you know, we got a problem with you. And very quickly, all of that went away. And similarly, after Trump got elected, there were a few months when we had this real discussion, real argument. You know, why, why did this happen? What did we do that allowed this to happen? And the first thing that happened is they created this dualism between economic explanations and racial explanations. So either Trump won because his supporters are genuinely suffering real economic hardships that we should deal with in some way, or it's because they're racist. And if they're racist, it's because they're bad people and they should be crushed, right? And they set this up as a dualism. You had academic papers coming out going, uh, which one is it, right? Now, of course, of course, if you think about this for a minute or two, it becomes clear that people who are racist or bigoted or have other kinds of, of nasty ideas going on in their heads, they have nasty ideas going on in their heads because they're stressed out, because they're mentally, spiritually, and psychologically exhausted. And very often economic distress and precarity and insecurity and being forced to move to chase jobs that have left rural areas and gone to cities or gone overseas, all of that contributes to the kind of stress which leads people to blame others and point the blame and get mad and get angry. You know, I remember in the 90s, there was a movie, uh, here's another movie, Land Before Time 3, 
Mm -hmm. Right. And in land before time three, there's a water shortage. Right. And the water shortage is stressing all the dinosaurs out because they're worried that they're going to run out of water. Right. So all of these dinosaurs, they're different species of dinosaurs. And they all start blaming each other and going, your kind's a water waster, your kind's a water waster. Right. And it's uh, and, and uh, the triceratopses get very, very, very bigoted. And they really go after the long necks and blame them for everything. Right. And one of the little long necks, you know, Littlefoot, the central character, you know, he's a little guy. He's been relentlessly picked on by the triceratops uh, you know, for potentially being a water waster, even though he's doing his best. And you know, he says, the reason that they're so mad at us is that they're scared that they might run out of water. And that's why they're, they're acting this way. And if we just find water, mm -hmm. then they'll calm down. And now that's something that writers in the 90s, writing a movie for kids, could pick up on, that the source of all of that cultural tension is material stress. And there are sources to that material stress that you can identify and you can alleviate, right? So clearly these things are connected, but the way to avoid having to confront the economic causes of Trumpism is to erect this false dualism between economic and cultural causes. And then say people who are talking about economic stuff are class reductionist or only talking about economic stuff are not interested in the other stuff. And they're ignoring that these are actually bad people, right? That's how all of this has worked. And the function of all of this has been to move us from a strategy of trying to deal with underlying economic causes to repression and trying to crush discourse and crush freedom of speech. Uh, and firstly, I don't think that that is really going to work because telling people the cause is not really the internet. The internet is a, the way the internet has grown and developed over the last 20 years. It's not because the internet is inherently a bad place. You know, people talk about, oh, internet and technology, it's so bad for you. It's not because these things are inherently bad. It's because they came to life in a society that was being stressed out by mm -hmm. 90s capitalism. 90s yeah. capitalism and 2000s capitalism and 10s capitalism was a very stressful experience. And it caused us to all become more mentally unhealthy. And we took all of that out on each other on the internet. And then we blame the internet for doing this to us. The internet is just a, a, a way of seeing what is going on in, in our people. And the freedom that there is on the internet, that's a, a means by which we can see what is wrong. Mm -hmm. And if you cover it up, then you can't see it. And it doesn't mean that it's gone away. And it reminds me of you know, in the Soviet Union, how they never know what's going on because they don't let anybody talk. And a big part of what caused the Soviet project to fail is that nobody knows what's going on because nobody lets anybody talk. And so these problems just fester and fester and fester, and no one can see them. And people are guessing about what the problems are because they don't really know, because no one will say. We have to let people say that they're upset, even though they're going to express it badly, because that's the only way we can begin to confront problems. Uh, and of course, the people who are most badly affected by the malaise in our society, they're going to express themselves very badly because they're very stressed out. And people who are very stressed out are not kind or generous. Uh, they don't behave themselves. Uh, people who are very stressed out say horrible things because they're mad. If you come home from work and you're tired and you're grumpy and you know, you're going to say things that you regret to the people around you and you're going to take it out on people that you love and you're going to say things about them that you really wouldn't mean if you were 
relaxed and calmed down. But we treat these people like they have isms, like they have you know, racism as an ideology that fundamentally constitutes them. And that's their essence now, because they said this thing, they are this ism. Uh, and now all they are is a vector for spreading the plague. They're like a zombie that stumbles around biting other people and spreading the plague. We've dehumanized them in doing this. They're just tired. They're tired and they're stressed and they're miserable and they're taking it out on people around them. And they don't have to do that. And if we just attend to the real cause, mm -hmm. they will calm down. Absolutely. We just have to overcome that dualism. The, uh, the level of debt that Ashley Babbitt was in, she'd taken on like an 169% loan um, because of her failing swimming pool company or swimming pool cleaning company or whatever. And um, it's obviously, yeah, no, it, it, the response to her death, it was quite astonishing, you know, the, the lack of empathy. Um, you know, people like actually just laughing, you know, and um, you know, so the wrong kind of person that was in sort of material distress. And I've heard also, you know, it's kind of like um, I do see it a little bit with the uh, the way that I think um, some of the formerly or grew up um, in a more elite PMC background, and obviously are being declassing essentially, you know, proletarianized because of various factors, economic factors, and also you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously economic factors, and on the, the, there, you know, that's, that, that there's a, a huge amount of anxiety there. There's a huge amount of um, disappointment, anger, justified anger, um, and that sometimes that's dismissed as well because oh, well, you know they went to college and everything. But you know, it, yes, they went to college. But I think that they're, they're also they're suffering. And I think this this is another example of from a different perspective. This was the wrong kind of person who. Well, she had a business. She was able to take on 169%. Like, you're like, this is just absolutely fucking ridiculous. Can't we have some empathy for people, you know? Um, but yeah, no, and of course, like racism, as we see the example of Nazism, like it is an, an outgrowth of this, like the, the, the economic conditions that we have of capitalism as such, of liberalism. Obviously, um, identitarianism is a, is a function of all kinds of um, social organizations. And when we see capitalism as, um, like a, a formalized version of a, um, you know, a, an ideology of promise, essentially, that, that it's not, you know, it's when people say like, oh, people who are like anti-capitalist, you know, they're, they're reductive or that it's some kind of system. Obviously, on the right, there's this idea that like um, capitalism is, is natural. It's just to do with human selfishness and stuff like that, which I think is actually it's, it's because of human unnaturality. I think humans are unnatural. They're like speaking subjects. So they are unnatural and therefore they desire. And then we have the sense of life. We want to fill with stuff and accumulation that never works. has actually gone on forever. But like this has always happened, you know, <laughs> but it's just it's, it's the way it's formalized within the liberal landscape, um, I think, is particularly disquieting and particularly requires a huge amount of um it's interesting you used bernie as like ideological because I, I had always kind of thought that ideological could be used for the irrational coverings over of the underlying um networks of reality of what's happening and the people who kind of stick to their guns because their principles are maybe more factual than ideological but yeah maybe but you're right like you know the people who actually kind of like have a set of ideas let's say um but yeah the, the AOC thing is it's really interesting I have to say I mean I maybe very early on very naively was like great certainly by December 2018, January 2019, I was like, this is so obvious, you know, <laughs> but it's just, it's amazing the speed at which this has happened. Um, 
I have to say, I was somebody who, you know, the, the, the Biden election does remind me a lot about um, the Tony Blair election, you know, in, in the 90s in the UK. And obviously people had experienced Thatcherism and then, you know, impotent John Major and stuff. And it was a, a great relief. But it, it's just, it's funny how we can just convince ourselves that it's something new every single time. Yeah, yeah. There I was, yeah, I was kind of using ideology in the broad sense of yeah. uh, just someone who's, who's consistent, has a kind of yeah. theory of the political that is cohesive and acting yeah. on that theory rather than in the critical theory sense of uh, yeah, covering absolutely. over murder. That's, that's always the difference. Like, I, this is another thing, by the way, just to, before we go on, like, so I have like a critical theory background and I think that unfortunately the critical theory stuff, um, so I, I believe in like factual truth, obviously, and I think the critical theory, when it's understood as like basically an outgrowth of continental philosophy is like an understanding of the unconscious is a factual truth. But like if it's not, understand do you know what I mean like the most I think most um executors of critical theory <laughs> don't understand it which is like how it's just been so annoyingly appropriated by like um liberal left fake well yeah and, and that's the thing like that that one of the big strengths of liberal capitalism is its ability to take almost any substantive okay. critique and turn it yeah. into a defanged new aesthetic which mm -hmm. can feature in a pluralistic civil society, a kind of, mm -hmm. in, in the mind of the liberal, a mature form of the critique, yes, which yes. is no longer anti-liberal, anti-state or anti-market, but which you know, it becomes a, a means of kind of informing liberalism of how it can be aesthetically a little bit more dynamic. And that's mm -hmm. really the function. It's just to renew that sense of, of plurality. Because if you don't feel like liberalism is too conformist, if you don't feel that way, it becomes a lot harder to critique it. And I think a big part of the critiques of post-war liberalism, at which the Frankfurt School and a lot of early critical theory is responding to, is this feeling of conformity, right? Mm -hmm. Coming out of the you know, 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, this feeling of conformity, right? That liberal civil societies become too much all the same thing. And so for a lot of people, if, if your critique is about whether there's aesthetic diversity, yeah. then all liberalism has to do is give you some aesthetic diversity. And then you'll mm -hmm. feel like it's a free society again, right? So yeah. in the 60s, we get all of these new forms of radicalism, right? Uh, and these new forms of radicalism make create this feeling that there's more diversity. But most of these forms of radicalism get subsumed into the thing because they're just aesthetically different. Absolutely. They lose their substantive conflict very early on. And the stuff that does continue to try to substantively conflict is ruthlessly policed out in the 70s and mm -hmm. eliminated, right? So by the time you come to the 80s and 90s, you again have a kind of consensus that is rigid and conformist. And the 80s and the 50s are almost the same decade. They, they have this heavy, heavy conformist feel to them. And it's a different context in terms of political economy, but they have that heavy conformist feel. And in the 90s, you get a lot of that stuff in, the, in, in film in the 90s that are kind of, well, is this really all life's about? Is this yeah. really, you know, it, it kind of beat generation type stuff, but in the 90s that are a little bit uh, anti-conformist, but, but in the 90s, a kind of revival of that. And then all of that gets kind of cut short by 9-11 and we get moved into the post 9-11 discourse, which prevents that from, from playing out. But you know, some people look at that and go, oh, if that stuff from the 90s had been able to play out, what could have happened? But mm -hmm. I think that the, the lesson that we should take from the 50s and 60s is that it would just be more anti-conformity stuff, mm -hmm. which would be easily uh, re, uh, reintegrated 
by creating more aesthetic plurality. And I think a lot of what we've seen in the last 20 years are new versions of this aesthetic plurality anchored around identity that have nothing to do with substantive challenge. Uh, and that shores up the system rather than challenging. Absolutely, it's shoring up the system. I mean, this is the, the 68 thing. It's like, <laughs> just, you know, obviously it's, it's a time when very obviously cultural things become capitalized upon private lives, you know, the expanse of capital. So yeah, all of these these moves are just kind of a, a way of opening the doors of, you know, where, where um, exploitation can occur essentially. Um, it's interesting, you know, about the critical theory thing, because obviously, you know, it's Marx who says that, you know, everything gets blandified because of capitalism. So, like, if you can read the um, conformity as a result of the underlying material economy, well, then you can get somewhere. <laughs> but if you just do the very facile misreading of the surface level thing, how how easy and also I can get a career out of this, you know, I could be a professional activist and, you know, it's not really it's not doing any. I don't. The, the activism isn't is isn't the issue at all. It's all about sort of um, you know understand and understanding underlying contradictions. And, you know, like is what you're doing is what you're about addressing those, or is it about covering over those with a new fancy veil? Um, what what de- in, in relation to the um, so obviously the 80s is 30 years after after <laughs> the 50s. Where do you see us in relation to that? Do you see us in a in a, in a decade of um, addressing aesthetic issues and expanding the realm of? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. I think this particular period has been, you know, you have the 70s in, in the late 20th century as a kind of decade of intense antagonism, but which doesn't go anywhere and ends yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, and I, I wonder if maybe the, the 10s was our 70s mm-hmm. and the 20s could be our 80s. Of course, everything is always different. So I'm, I'm hesitant to yeah. use that kind of analogy. Yeah. Um, and I do think that the, the thing about the 80s is that while the 80s did not solve a lot of the fundamental problems, it, uh, it did get some level of material result in, insofar as in the 80s, inflation did go down and growth rates uh, recovered from the position they were in in the late 70s. Uh, not to the level that they were in in the 50s and 60s, of course, but there was a partial recovery in the growth rate and inflation was materially reduced. So a lot of the causes of the conflict in the 70s were at least to some degree materially dealt with in the 80s in a very brief way that had plenty of holes in it that would come undone in the decades to follow. But there was at least some kind of material movement in the 80s, some kind of response. The response mainly favored the right wing, but there was some kind of response. I'm not sure that there has been a response materially in the 20s. I think that one of the things that marks this period is a kind of cultural ideas fanaticism Mm -hmm. in the center. The center really thinks that all of this is a discursive mirage Mm -hmm. that can be handled purely through the culture Mm -hmm. and doesn't really require doing anything. Yeah. To the point where even with this corona recession, which in the States has got us still, even though the States has had a relatively uh, strong recovery compared to a lot of European countries, uh, still has got us you know, five percentage points of GDP lower than we were before coronavirus started. So a larger reduction in GDP than we had post-2008. And we have still, uh, for the people in the bottom uh, part of the economy, a 20% reduction in employment for low-income workers. Uh, Even with those factors, 
there is intense resistance to doing the kind of stimulus that would actually address the scale of it. Even with all of the arguments over the last 10 years about MMT and about how the state can spend all kinds of money, when they do stimulus, they want to give all the money to rich people in the form of the PPP loans in the states. Mm -hmm. uh, they don't want to, to give, uh, they don't want to create new social programs. They will do one-off checks, but always a little bit too small, never mm -hmm. big enough to really move the needle. Uh, I, yeah, I, I'm kind of amazed at just how durable the liberal response is that says this is just a discursive issue and it yeah. really doesn't require any material solution at all. And they had this attitude before Corona and they still largely have this attitude even under Corona uh, and it even under another big recession. It's yeah. astonishing. And so what I think is, is going, part of this is overconfidence on the part of liberalism. Yeah. So as much as they talk about, oh my God, these people, they were gonna take the state, they know that they weren't going to take the state. That's why there were plenty of Republicans who were happy to uh, meme being, uh, believing that the election had been stolen. Uh, mm -hmm for the benefit of their base, because they're not really worried about the American government collapsing and being taken over by authoritarians. None of them are really worried about that. That's, that's a show for voters. Um, what they are interested in doing is using the perception that somebody else is interested in doing that to vilify them politically and turn out base voters in elections. It's all mm -hmm. about turning out your base in elections. So for Trump, uh, the idea that the election was stolen means that he's not a loser and therefore you can vote for him again. Uh, mm -hmm. And you should, because you have to redeem the fact that the election was stolen, right? Uh, him or somebody like him that he endorses. Uh, so all of this, all of this stuff is really just, just discursive papering over. And the mm -hmm. liberal, liberals really haven't reckoned with it, even with Trump, even with Bernie, even with Corona, even with 2008, their level of overconfidence coming out of the 90s is so gigantic you know, even with Iraq, even with all of these things that have happened, they really just believe it's all discursive. And so mm -hmm. there's a part of me that wonders uh, if, if it can actually close up like it did in the 80s or the 50s again here, because there has just been no level of reckoning, at least in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And even in the 80s, there was some level of recognition that there was some kind of fundamental political economy issue. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they don't recognize that anymore. They're really living in the land of make-believe. Absolutely. I mean, I guess, you know, you could call them psychoanalytic terms, death drive. You know, this is just like the, obviously, you know, so lots of liberals calling themselves Marxists, you know, at the moment, but like, obviously, at some level, well, the most obvious contradiction of capitalism is that, that workers are necessary to buy the products that, that are produced by capital. And like, this really weird way that is being attempted to sort of close the loop is UBI, but obviously that's just not going to work because it's the same. It's the same. It's the same thing, you know. Just tinkering with a little bit of, you know, chucking a bit overboard to those drowning to keep the kind of the, you know, it's like it's like scooping out the sinking ship with a frigging bucket, you know. <laughs> I don't know. It's uh... and the level of UBI they talk about is so insultingly low. You know, the Andrew yeah. Yang proposal of a thousand dollars a month. People are supposed yeah. to live off twelve thousand dollars a year. I, that was the most the most lowballing, ridiculous mm -hmm. UBI proposal. Mm -hmm. And the fact that so many people looked at that and went, "Oh wow, Andrew Yang, he cares about us. We can trust him." Uh, my God, I know this is uh, they are cheap dates. It's, it's funny. It's it's dealing with the contradictions of capitalism obviously you know you're talking about you can't predict you can't 
you can't predict the future and that's you know one of the major major uh, problems let's just say with you know uh, you, you can never you know marks whatever you can't you can never predict the future you know things things events happen you know it's all about sort of um you know and, and i think part of being a leftist is to accept the unknown you know you, you know that, that, that um as soon as we turn contradiction into opposition through like clever fairy tales we've lost you know um but in order this is the contradiction of our age what we can instead of like seeing where this productive contradiction can go it's like uh retreating into feudalism you know like a pre a pre capitalistic uh system yeah um, and i think a lot of people are doing this so in response to what is going on on the internet and what's been going on in politics a lot of people have been moving back to the family Mm-hmm. as an escape hatch. And I think mm-hmm. on the right, we see this a lot. And it's a big part of what's driving all of the interest in Christopher Lash is this yeah. kind of movement back to the family mm-hmm. as a way of kind of getting out of uh, the, the, uh, you know, the, the fact that everything is being taken up in this new conformity. Mm-hmm. And the family is a kind of private outpost where you can hide out from that. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, it's a very, uh, yeah, you know, I'm sympathetic to it because it is a move that does give people some level of psychological protection from what's mm-hmm. going on. I do think, however, it has also led to a lot of over-reliance on the family mm-hmm. and asking the family to do a lot of things that mm-hmm. the family isn't really built to do, uh, mm-hmm. that we've started kind of asking the family to do everything for us mm-hmm. and asking romance to do everything for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this this often leads to very controlling romantic dynamics mm-hmm. that have a hard time holding up. The family, as it was originally conceived, it's meant to be part of an ecosystem of social yeah. relations and mm-hmm. not as the only thing or as the, the sole outpost where your, you know, whatever it is that you actually value or believe can be carried out. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of people who feel kind of kicked out of the public discourse, especially traditionalists, who are mm-hmm. looking at the family as a place where they can actually have their values and have them in totality. And mm-hmm. so they're, they're getting very, very prescriptive within the family. And I think that puts a lot of tension on marriages and a lot of tension on parent-kid relationships and leads to a lot of divorce and leads to a lot of kids acting out and having trouble uh, because it's a little bit of an overreach. It's an attempt to fix everything else that's going on in the family. And that isn't going to work either. Uh, Ultimately, we're going to have to come back out of the family. And I think in the 50s, there was a similar big emphasis on family. And in the 80s, a similar big emphasis on family. And part of that is because there was this overwhelming killer consensus in the public realm that uh, people felt very oppressed by. And the family is a place where they could kind of hide out. But just like in the 50s and the 80s, if this is another version of that decade, and I'm not sure it will be because the liberal response has been so pathetic this time. Uh, but if it is, if, if this is another version of that decade, I think what people got to remember is uh, those decades are only one decade. Now, mm-hmm. If it is the case that the whole 20s are like the 80s or the 50s, uh, then there will be another you know, there will be another beat movement. There will be another group of people who get tired of all of this and reintroduce some of it into the public realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there will be another anti-conformity thing where some of these values that have been kind of put into hiding come back out and leak back out and make noise again, uh, because the the kind of system that liberalism creates involves denying elements of what is human. Mm-hmm. It's alienating in that respect. It mm-hmm. it involves fundamentally denying elements of what's human, and mm-hmm. the you know it, it's it's kind of funny. The most left wing attitude to this 
you know, where traditionally, if you think back to the utopian socialists as left, mm -hmm. uh, their attitude is that you can re-socialize people to believe anything or to value anything. And so a lot of uh, more traditional people go, oh, you know, liberalism is winning and, and everyone is going to be liberal. And uh, all I can do is hide out in my little enclave and, and have kids and have, have a spouse. But you know, if you really take seriously uh, the traditional conservative objection to utopian socialism, which is that you can't immediately re-socialize everybody to be whatever you want in the blink of an eye, then any kind of new consensus uh, that seems to uh, deny elements of what is human cannot last for very long. It will feel very real in the moments in which it is forming and in the moments of its zenith. But what it, what it really is for people is, is it's a temporary escape from the agonism of politics mm -hmm. for people exhausted by that agonism. And I mm -hmm. think Trump exhausted a lot of people. And so you're hearing all of this, oh, now I can sleep soundly because Joe Biden has mm -hmm. been elected. I, can, I don't have to doom scroll at night because I have Joe Biden and I can trust him, right? All of this is a kind of desperate, desperate desire to get away from politics and to have this consensus where everybody has to agree on the same things or they can't talk. Uh, as a way of just calming it all down, calming mm -hmm. it all down. And the uh, function of that ultimately, it, it's only temporary because that kind of calmed down, defanged, uh, non-confrontational discourse can't last. It has to constantly reinvent itself. The way liberalism moves is by constantly dying and being reborn. So it will go through this again, and we will have another period of opening up and another period of challenging, even if this is the decade where it closes up. It won't be the end. It will be uh, another, another period in the long story of liberalism reinventing consensus over and over again. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, I do question whether, whether liberalism can really do it because it's just been such a pathetic, pathetic response compared know, to what they used to do. Things it's so obvious. I have to say, I have a confession that it's so, I feel like so alienated at the moment because I like, obviously have a bunch of friends and like, this is, you know, they're in a celebratory mood, but like I actually ended up like the worst night's sleep I've ever had was the day of the night of the inauguration. I, I like, uh, I was having nightmares about intruders and everything. And like, I was, this is, this is, you know, but I, um, yeah, it's just, it's just so, it just seems so, if, if you have a certain perspective, you know, obvious that this is, not a good thing and I you know there's something that one might find comforting from a different perspective of having you know having it all there on the surface you know having the manifestation of the issues just all there you know it's like you know something that you can immediately deal with and um, rather than like a more silent killer let's just say um but yeah I guess I think we're gonna have to uh, wrap it up even though we have a gazillion other things to say because I have to attend a lecture uh, next, my weekends are just becoming like so busy with lectures. But um, so just to go to go back to the to, to the movie itself, you know, this idea I think that really we're kind of getting at is the question of um, what is the political. So you know, the the actual undercurrents, the structural issues, the the contradiction with the the network of systems that you know are. Um, really underpin a, a given uh, social order and, you know, your work's all about then, you know, the the aesthetic <laughs> in relation to that. So if an aesthetic can be an emergent of that, then there's no problem with that aesthetic, I think. Or, you know, so, you know, as, as an artist, well, obviously we've been defensive, but as an artist, you know, like, as I, I'm, uh, you know, art's what I do and I love art and stuff, but like, 
when when things are coming from the right place and the aesthetics are an emergent of that, like I think it's just the best thing ever. But then the most irritating thing for me is the opposite, when it has absolutely nothing to do with all of that. And it's just literally there as a comfort blanket to to um, perpetuate systems that are really um, making people suffer. And that obviously in the long term, this creates more problems than the, the original problem. Um, but yes, yeah, so to go back to, to Trumbo and his reintegration into the system, maybe we should like, close on that and how it relates to certain figures <laughs> who have very quickly entered into. It's, it's interesting that the, the, the aesthetics of antagonism existed at the point of entry into the system. I think that's just like so brilliantly interesting. But yeah, I mean, do you have any closing thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah. By the time you you get let back in, it's usually because it's found the dis they've found a way to accommodate what you're doing, yeah. uh, and often even if you are still substantively critical, because yeah. by that point there is an aesthetic version of you that yeah. is tame, uh, you're not a problem because you will be interpreted as part of that aesthetic, mm -hmm. uh, and even if you you know tried to get out from under it, it would be very hard to by that point. And I think you know, AOC is really the, the version of this that has been reintegrated in, a great example of it, a totem for it. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, even if you're someone with kind of left politics, because of the level of discursive influence that these uh, influencers like AOC have, they have this mediating role that makes it very difficult for the left to actually contravene liberalism. Mm -hmm. Because if the left tries to do that, uh, people like AOC will reel it back in. And I think we saw this with the whole Jimmy Dore debate recently. And that's a whole nother thing that we could talk about at some future point. But yes, th this, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, there's this kind of, these influencers, these people who, who become the aesthetic leaders have yeah. this ability to rein the discourse back in. And that makes these uh, other seemingly more threatening people not a problem. Anything they do, which is too much, the mediating influencers will reel it back in and make it tame. Uh, and yeah. so at that point they can be allowed. And in fact, allowing the more substantively radical people back in makes the aesthetic feel genuinely radical Absolutely. and facilitates rather than frustrates the reintegration of the radical movement. And it's, it's amazing, the, the, the absolute contradictions. In fact, Jimmy Dore does these videos where he'll put two AOC tweets alongside each other where she'll use one argument in one direction and precisely the same argument in another it's uh yeah it's quite it's quite amazing potentially a little bit depressing and um yeah i mean i guess we'll keep thinking about uh, these things <laughs> despite everything and uh different uh organizational ways of organizing organizing around these contradictions and bringing these contradictions to the surface but um yeah, it's all it's all interesting. It's all difficult, and it's I guess also all about um, being able to extract yourself from. Um, I mean, I you know other people than me call it like the ideology of promise, but it's really that ideology of promise that you can you know better yourself by um, whatever you do. You know, to make I don't know, <laughs> get, getting getting more money, getting more fame, whatever. Um, but I mean, the way that in psychoanalysis we would analyze that is that that never works. So you will be really depressed even if you get that. So you might as well just like stick to your principles and do what you actually want to do, you know, and try to contribute contribute in decent ways. Obviously, then there's the question of materially being able to do that, which is a whole other thing. 
but yeah. <laughs> yeah, the, the reintegration of Trumbo allows you to have this illusion that the Red Scare is something that happened and now it's over with and it's done. Okay. But yeah. of course, the Red Scare, once you have a Red Scare, the culture that you have is always the post-Red Scare culture. Absolutely, and the yeah. Red Scare has done its work. Yeah. And you, you, st you, you, you are never without it uh, because what you have is, is its consequence. Uh, yeah. And the same goes for, for this. Uh, we will never be without the, the culture where uh, the right-wingers were kicked off of Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. Uh, we will always be living in a world where, where that has happened. And yeah. our culture will always be to some degree a product of that. Yeah, it's yeah, no, absolutely. And uh, it's also interesting. Um, I will have to go because my lecture is literally just starting. But um, yeah, the, the, the Bernie thing, the Bernie, Bernie meme, how how like digestible is Bernie? He's not 26, but it's 2016 Bernie anymore. He is the, the, the jolly grandfather sitting in the corner appearing in all our photographs, which maybe says something about the fact that- Making everybody else Bernie. feel more real and, and more genuinely radical just by his presence. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Anyway, um, thanks so much, Benjamin. Really enjoyed our conversation again. And we should do a part two because I do that whole AOC Jimmy Dore thing was brilliantly um, telling, let's just say. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah and for sure. um, uh, speak soon. And thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah, thanks so much. Bye -bye. Okay.